Welcome to our Transgender School podcast. We're here to talk about diverse transgender identities and experiences so that we can all be better allies and advocates. We'll also discuss current events, welcome guests, and share actions you can take to support trans people. I'm Bridget, and my daughter Jackie came out as a transgender woman about four years ago when she was 19 years old. I was totally unprepared, but I have learned a lot since then. And now Jackie and I are passionate about sharing what we've learned. When I came to terms with being trans, I realized that I absolutely needed to transition, but coming out was very stressful. Now that a few years have passed, things have gotten somewhat easier, and I want to help other trans people navigate their own unique experiences. Welcome back to the Transgender School podcast. Thank you for being with us again. We are so, so honored and excited to have our very special guest here with us today, Dr. Johanna Olson Kennedy, who we tend to lovingly call Dr. Joe in our support group. Is that preferred for you? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for being here, Dr. Joe. Yeah, thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Joe, and welcome. We're going to have a great conversation. Yeah, thank, thank you so you much for-, for having me. It's always an honor to be able to talk about my work and all of these families that are so close to my heart. Yes, and we feel the same way about you. You've helped so many families in our community. And so let me just do a quick introduction and let people know why we're so honored and excited to have you here, and then we'll dive into the conversation. So Obviously, Dr. Johanna Olson-Kennedy is a physician, but she specializes in the care of transgender children and teenagers and spends a lot of time with transgender children and teens and their families, right? Explaining all of the options and the medical care that the array of, of choices and decisions, and I can't even imagine, you know, having to explain and really help people understand because there's such a need for education in this area. She's board certified in pediatrics and adolescent medicine. She's the medical director of the Center for Trans Youth Health and Development at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. But she really is known as a leading expert nationally, I'm sure internationally as well, on this subject, the medical care for transgender youth, young adults, teenagers. Um, She's the person, she's the go-to person, whether it's on the news, a conference presentation. And as our audience knows, because our last interview was with Aiden Olson-Kennedy. You know, you two are kind of the power team in helping people really understand mental health care for Aiden's part and medical care and treatment for transgender people. And we're so grateful that, that you're doing so much education and providing so much service in the world in this area. She's also a volunteer professional for our support group, Transforming Family. That's how I came to know Dr. Joe. And I've sat in many, many meetings just absorbing her wisdom And there is so much to learn when you have a transgender child and you're not educated. And, you know, Jackie probably can tell, you know, all the time I've sat in the meetings with you how much I've learned, because when we talk about all of the experience of being transgender, including the medical side, I think I'm much more educated now, thanks to you. So I just want to say thank you for that from both of us, I think, (laughs) you know, and so let me just turn it to you. Let's get you talking because you have so much to share. Um, And our first question really is open-ended to tell us more about the work you do and why you do it, why it's so important to you. Thank you so much. I, I always say I never feel nervous until someone does my my uh, bio and then suddenly I'm like, oh, look at these 
big shoes I have to fill. But, um, yeah. So thanks so much for having me. And I am, as you said, the medical director of the Center for Trans Youth Health and Development. But I think it's really important at the beginning of any of these conversations to center, you know, myself. I am not a person of trans experience. I think that's really important because we can only look through the glasses that we have around our gender. And so I feel really just incredibly grateful and fortunate that I have learned so much what I've learned from the young people and their families, the young people that I take care of, my friends um, and family who are in the community. But I really want to say that because I think that's that's really important um, when we move forward with this work that we talk about the lens that we all come to this work with. So that is mine as a cisgender person yes. um, and as a physician. And I carry a lot of privilege. I carry white privilege and, and socioeconomic status privilege and education privilege. So that's my beginning of um, centering where I come from this work mm-hmm. through that lens. So I feel like very grateful to my program at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and my larger institution, USC, Um, My boss, Marvin Belzer, who started doing this work long before I was even on the scene, probably puts our program as one of the oldest youth programs in the country, probably the world. And so I am also like in deep gratitude because the way that our program started at Children's Hospital is really through our HIV youth program. And it really, back in the 90s, it was very clear that trans young women, particularly of color, were at such high risk for HIV acquisition and transmission because of the myriad of things, right, that they were facing. And and so it made sense that young people were getting their hormone care under the same roof they were getting their HIV care. And it really grew from there. But I think like so many things, our program was built on the backs and wisdom and experience that we gained from trans young women of color. And that's so true across so many places, but it really does ground and help um, us remember the roots from our, which our large tree has grown. And that's a really important part of our history. So I started doing this work in 2006. I had done my fellowship at adolescent medicine, the Division of Adolescent Young Adult Medicine at Children's Hospital. And then they hired me in 2006 to come on full time. And that corresponds with, this is a pretty critical piece of the work that I do. 2006 was the year that the Dutch published the Dutch protocol utilizing puberty blockers. Mm -hmm. And so because I was, because I'm double board certified in pediatrics and then subspecializing in adolescent medicine, it made sense that I would do this piece of the work that was more concerned with younger, younger people, right? So that the use of puberty blockers happens in younger people. So that's, that's how I started. And then when I came in the program, we had about 40 young people in the program. And now we have about 1800. Wow. 1800. Oh my goodness. That's amazing really cool. And we provide services for young people between the ages of three and 25. And at 25, people uh, move into adult care. That's really great. So what would you say for the young people who are not able to access that level of care that you provide? What would you say are the biggest barriers? And what do we need to do to make sure that every young trans person can access that quality of care? 
I think there's two things. I think that there are barriers that people face even with access to good services, to, to comprehensive services. And then the second thing that I want to say and acknowledge and probably has been acknowledged, I'm sure, on this podcast is that there are a lot of folks who don't seek medical services and all of that is fine. I think that's a really important piece because there are some really unpleasant tropes that are out there about my work, about the work that is done in this field, and that that the decision, you know, I think we mix up the decision, right? It's You're not deciding about your gender. You're deciding what to do if it's not aligned with your designated sex at birth. And that is really helps sort of think about and frame the decision making in a different way. But acknowledging lots of trans folks who don't seek medical intervention or surgical intervention for people who have access to medical interventions, if that's where they're moving toward, I think they face the same kinds of barriers as people who don't have that access. There's an additional burden for people who want access and can't get it. And we know one of the things that's so challenging, right, about about gender, gender, let's just like, I, the one of the things that's so challenging about gender, right, mm-hmm. is that it, um, it does not exist in a vacuum, Right. And so this idea or this thought that people bring forward about like, oh, you know, would you have to have medical intervention if you lived alone on a desert island? Right. Is something that sometimes people will say. Right. And and what Mm -hmm. it what it means is, I mean, in addition to being an irrelevant question, because we're not alone on a desert island, I think that what it helps bring um, focus to is the the bi-directional motion of gender right like uh, there's a person who's who that person and their gender do not live in isolation they live surrounded by a world in which they're contextually relevant to them and and time so culture time religion geography age all of those things and there's information moving back and forth from that world around someone to that person and from that person to the world around them related to gender and that makes for a very complex situation that is, it's not easy to parse out, like, which are the things that are impacting people in a very proximal way, like close to them versus what are the things that are impacting their mental health and well-being that are more distal to them, because they are all interrelated. And that becomes, it becomes really challenging, right? So like in the moment, go back in history. And I'm a really big, big, I love history, all things history, but I, I really love history of the community, but also history of the provision of care because it tells us, it informs us about where we are now, about what things remain exactly the same, unfortunately, and where, where we have moved. But when you go back into some of the earlier you know, Magnus Hirschfeld work out of Germany. And when I talk about the history of the care provision, I really mean in the context of Western Europe and the U.S. Because the medicalization of trans experience really is kind of a Western European and U.S. thing. And Western Europe was way, way, way further ahead than the United States was. So in Western Europe, because of some of the really, really important people in this history, like Magnus Hirschfeld, made Germany a, a kind of a, a hotbed of like thinking about sexuality and gender and how those things are related and, and how people could live their best lives. So if you go back into that, into that historical content, 
like wade through all of the hellacious stuff that people were saying. But if you get to the real nuggets of what people were saying, they were, you know, people over a lot of time and documents have said, listen, I know that you outside medical provision world keeps categorizing this, this discordance of people's gender and their body, their physicality as a mental health problem. But what we also know is that it's actually refractory to mental health treatment, right? So, so that we have to reframe and think about it as like, when you can only change your body to help move you know, gender and body into more alignment, that's what you do. You can't change someone's brain. And I think it was very early on, people were recognizing like, oh, gender identity probably lives in the brain. And so you, we cannot change your brain. And so people change their bodies. And that's, that's such an important point, right? Because we still live with and have not shed the vestigial tale of this is mental health illness, right? And because of that, that singular thing is what creates the most barriers for everyone, whether you have access or not. Because if you don't have access, it's the reason why is because either your family or whatever your immediate circumstances are can't conceptualize that being trans is not a mental illness, right? And if you do have access, and because of that, maybe you don't have access, like you're not allowed to access what exists, or you live in a place where there is no care and no one wants to do the care because everybody thinks it's a mental illness, right? And if you do have access to services, you have to jump through still a lot of hoops because the people doing the care demand certainty, which is not something that you could demand, right? So the people that are demanding the care are trying to make themselves feel the best they can, right? Which puts an undue burden on the person seeking care. So this is weirdly the only field of medicine where it's really designed, completely designed around making all the cisgender people around the patient comfortable. It's very, very unique in that way. It's also an interesting, wow. it's also an interesting field in that the longer you do this work, the less reliable you are to people skeptical of the work. Mm. Right? Uh-huh. And, mm-hmm. and one more thing mm-hmm. if you have trans people in your family or your partner that adds an additional layer of skepticism for people around your capacity to right. do work so right. in every other field it's like oh well if you're a rheumatologist and you have a rheumatologic condition or you have family members with like oh you have a totally different perspective it means your empathy is much mm-hmm. greater, blah, blah, blah. no mm-hmm. not in this work right. not in this work it's right. really really fascinating and I can you know move myself outside and look at it from from an outsider perspective right because one of the things that I also struggle with is that we are doing two things. We're helping individuals feel more comfortable but simultaneously we're trying to fix a world that's broken about this. And those two things have to happen simultaneously. And I think that that's really hard, right? Because as a medical provider, just inherently, right? I'm contributing to the binary. I'm contributing to this idea of like, there's male and there's female and people want to, you know, let me just widen the lens for a second. Like, I actually think that gender is probably most like a color wheel. And we have a color wheel and we have these two points on it, male and female, 
that are reference points. They're reference points because they're the only things that we know or that we have constructed our society around. And that most people probably cluster around those reference points in some way or another, right? But there's a whole lot of turquoise and lime and lemon and, right? But it's not meaningful. It doesn't have context to go into your doctor and say, I'm lime. And so we have to work with the, the sort of points that we have that are these reference points. But it's, it's really hard, right? Because it would be really nice if everyone could do their gender in whatever they are and however they're packaged, right? And we just didn't have such rigidity, right? Because of the rigidity around the social performance and social roles that, that it compels people in order to function to match closer to that expectation, so it's really hard to both understand that I'm helping people with that, but also I'm contributing to it continuing. And that that makes for a really weird sort of brain space, I guess is what I'm saying. And a lot of parents yeah. will say this. Why can't you just, and this, by the way, this is more common in people who, parents of people designate female at birth. Why can't you just be, you know, non-binary or transmasculine or a man mm-hmm. or boy or whatever, in the body that you have, like, why can't mm-hmm. we, and I, I always call this the gender utopia argument, right? Mm-hmm. Because like, right, that's true. That totally is true. Why can't you do that? Right. But I'm also not going to lay that burden on your kid. <laughs> that doesn't seem fair, right? Mm-hmm. We have to do all of these things together. We have to fix the world. We have to help a person live as comfortably as they can. That was a great answer. I specifically remember negotiating with my partner at the time that I came out and she was like, can't you just be non-binary? And I'm like, oh, that's, that's not really how I feel. But I'm like, okay. So just just to touch on a, a couple of the points you made about kind of doing this work and by doing the work, you're advancing the research and helping get people care, but at the same time, alienating the people who already don't believe in the work. And this divide is only becoming more and more rigid. You touched on, I mean, a lot of points you touched on, like how 1930s Germany, there was this emerging research about what it was to be trans and the idea that maybe we should be trying to change the body instead of trying to treat it as a mental illness and change the brain. And then, of course, the natural thought that follows is what happened in Germany afterwards. And, you know, looking at currently, like we're hearing, I don't know how much you watch all the all the insane stuff that happens on the news, but like the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying that he thought that it would be a, quote, Reichstag moment when Trump supporters tried to essentially overthrow the elected Congress and the people who were behind him in succession for the presidency and prevent them from validating the results of the election. And so I just wonder, like, as someone who's doing this work and watching the work that you're doing become illegal in other states throughout the country, do you feel like you're on a battlefield? And like, where do you feel like this is headed? Um, Because it, it seems scary as a trans person. And I think it seems scary for a lot of the people who are doing this work, that things are getting more bitterly divided and the rhetoric about mental illness and making care illegal in red states is only getting worse. Yeah, I mean, I think that things, first of all, I'm just going to start with, it's appalling. And it's really frustrating to have moved with the field and helped move the field forward as much as we had up until five years ago. And then to watch it sliding back and really in the wake of like frustration about um, Trump not being reelected, that trans folks have sort of 
been the low hanging fruit. I think that's like, you know, when you come after reproductive rights and trans care, you don't have a lot of solid policy. I mean, that's basically what I can say about that. It's devastating and people will die because of it. People will die. We'll lose young people to death by suicide. We will discourage a lot of people from doing this work. I think that, and that's the cruelty is the point. The cruelty is the point. And so it is really important that the people who are doing the work continue to do the work, continue to practice medicine in the way that we know is backed by science, continue to be open, continue to learn, continue to adapt your practice that in a way that's responsive to the community, continue to do research with the community and with the health and well-being of the community at the forefront. It is really important that trans community members who are scientists or who are interested in science and medicine also go into this work. It is absolutely essential that we continue to carry on. We have to. And also without defensiveness, right? Like human beings deserve to live their best lives. They deserve that. People deserve authenticity. That is a human right. And we actually don't have to defend the work. We have to continue to do the work. That is more important than defending it, is doing it. And it would be really helpful if there were more. One of the things that's challenging is that there isn't a a great or really good established network of providers. There are some loose networks here and there. And we have, of course, like USPATH and WPATH. But I think one of the things that I've seen is that the people doing the work are so busy doing the work that they don't have all this time to like write op-eds and write responses to all this nonsense, right? And, and so, but in some ways that's good, right? Because the work is not reactive. The work is proactive. The work is active, right? It doesn't have to be reactive. You can't answer your rationality with logic and science. Right? You just have to answer medicine and practice with science and logic, right? That's the way that you have to do it. That doesn't mean that I don't think about this a lot and get super frustrated and angry and super sad and feel like my heart going out to all of the people, young and old and family members and who are in these states and just keep, I I just have to believe and know this to be true, that there are people who are fighting those laws. There are people who are absolutely getting those things, trying to get those things reversed. And that I do believe that science and history will prevail in this way. I really do think that because it's inevitable that there will be another community to trash in a short amount of time. I mean, and that's really sad, but that's just, that's how people who are sort of motivated by fear operate is they move from, you know, vulnerable community to vulnerable community to help shore up their own sense of safety. And so we will move through this because most of the people who are making these laws or proposing these laws aren't doing the work, right? They're making these laws based on the people who are the loudest who get a platform. They have a platform from whence to spew that nonsense because of the last five years. 
that is the real shame right, is all the damage that has happened in the last five years that has given a platform for people who have literally no experience or skill whatsoever, and they're not of the community, and they don't have trans kids, and they don't sit in rooms with people with gender dysphoria, and they don't Mm -hmm. listen to them. And what's so, you know, I say this all the time, that the devastation, the tragedy of gender dysphoria is totally misplaced right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The challenge of it, the pain of it is not about, is someone going to change their mind? Is this really the right thing? How do they really know their gender? It's the gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. That's where the challenge of it is. All this other stuff is somebody else's stuff, right? Mm -hmm. That's not related to the person experiencing the gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. And so we have laws being created that again, this is a recurring theme that are there for the comfort of the cisgender people around the community members, that's a problem. The mm-hmm. laws have to be in place to protect the vulnerable communities. I just wonder, like, because, I mean, unfortunately, we're in this reality where there are now states where it is illegal to do this kind of care and where there are trans kids who are not going to be able to get that care. So I guess my question is, do we have an, as we continue to fight those laws and support the people who are fighting those laws and fight for comprehensive federal protections, do we as people who live in blue states also have a moral obligation to pass state laws here that create safe havens for trans kids who are fleeing abusive, non-supportive families? Do we have a moral obligation to fund housing and support services and medical care for those trans kids? Yes, I think we do. I mean, I think we always carry that, that responsibility, whether it be about, you know, immigration, whether it be about LGBTQ plus young people or adults. I mean, I think, but honestly, like, it's hard for me to, I think we have an obligation to do that for humanity. We have such a problem with unhoused people in in LA right now. It's like, so it's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. There are so many things that we don't do right. Even in the blue states, we don't do them right. And we are going to move towards doing them right and better, but we have to overcome these like giant swing backs, right? That we have where we move back really far and then we have to gain that ground back again to be better, right? Like we had this amazing opportunity with the pandemic to recreate so many things. We had this huge opportunity, right? But what do we do? Like the pandemic, what it it taught us was our healthcare system is terrible, right? I mean, a lot of us that work in it know that. I've spent a lot of my life doing political work to try and change our healthcare system, right? But what we saw was it's actually really untenable to have a profit-based healthcare system. It's not sustainable and it actually isn't working for anyone except about 10 people, right? And so, you know, in a democracy right? Democracy is about, right, thinking about the common good. Oh, I could wax on about this. We could, we could do a whole podcast about single payer in California. And yeah, I should have seen this coming because I know Jackie's, you know, you're both and I'm with you. I don't know as much as you do, but I'm with you 100%. I do want to take a little time and it's related to speak to parents because a lot of our listeners are parents and having you here is such a gift for us as parents. And so, you know, as we're talking about all of this 
unfortunate, all of these unfortunate messages and the fear-based, you know, decisions that are being made and, and criminalizing care for transgender youth and, uh, you know, taking away their right to play sports. I mean, all the horrific things that we're seeing happen. I think one of the effects of that is that for a parent, when their child comes out, and I, you know, I talk to a lot of parents either through intake in the sport group, which is everybody sends me, oh, you know, your kid just came out. You got to go talk to Bridget. So it's like, you know, multiple calls a week and I'm happy to do it. But I feel like because of all these messages, the first response for a parent when their kid comes out is just sheer terror. It's like, how can I have a trans kid in this scary, scary world for trans people? And unfortunately, one of them, the consequences of that is they don't take their kid to the doctor, even when they have means, right? We always tell, go to the children's hospital, you know, and it's like, well, I don't know. I'm going to wait until my kid is really sure. And I don't know. And to your point, they want to take them to a therapist, but they want to take them to a therapist usually so that because they think the therapist will be able to say that they're not actually transgender. I mean, it's, you know, you know what happens in a lot of these cases, but I would love to hear from you what it's like to take your child to a doctor who specializes in trans youth and to help parents not be so afraid of it because it is the support that you want and need for your kids. You should, you know, certainly you, there are reasons to be afraid of what's going on in the world out there, but not in the doctor's office of an affirming physician who treats trans youth. If you have access, get there and get there immediately because also to your point, it's pretty impacted. There's not, you know, that you're going to have to wait a little bit for an appointment. So don't wait. Don't wait another minute. Make that appointment. They, these parents think a lot of the, not all, okay, not to generalize because so many parents do know and are educated and are supportive. But I think a good number of parents think, oh, I'm going to take my kid to the doctor and this is going to be some trans loving doctor and they're going to want to do surgery on my kid right away. And, you know, please help people understand. So I, my kid is 10 or 15 or whatever, and we get our appointment with Dr. Joe, what is that going to be like? And why is that going to be a good thing and not something to be afraid of? Yeah. I, and that perception that I'm standing at the door with like a syringe of testosterone, right. <laughs> syringe of estrogen, like, what do you want me to make you? Yeah. No, mm-hmm. that's not, that's not really right. A, right. That's not a thing. I think one of the things that is, is really what makes trans youth care specifically for me, very, very interesting and exciting is that you know, people are coming in, think about um, all of the developmental trajectories that humans have, right? So people, and now think about all of the different combinations of where people can be on those trajectories. So there's a chronologic age trajectory, there's a pubertal development trajectory, and there's sort of an identity or gender trajectory, right? And so people are coming in with those, those are the three, there's other things, educational, there's sexuality trajectories, right? But like for the what we're talking about around potential physical interventions, those three are probably the critical trajectories that that I think about and that I think are really valuable when anyone's doing this work um, to think about, right? Because all of those trajectories are going to intersect and they're going to matter when you're helping families make decisions about what where to go, what to do. So. The first thing that I have to say is that, you know, not everybody practices this work in the same way. I'm just going to say this because some people have, they're restricted by their institutions in, in what they can do, in the timeline of what they can do. And some people are restricted by their own, like maybe they're newer to the field and they haven't had as much experience and they are, they have some of the same 
you know, quite, like all of us are raised in a, in a cis normative transphobic world, right? Whether we're trans, whether we're cis, whether we're doctors, whether we're, we're all raised in this environment that has largely held to this idea that being trans mental illness, right? And so people have, they entertain these things that we're exposed to as humans, everybody gets exposed to them, right? So like, let's say that you, this is like a common thing, right? That all all questions come down to the same five questions about this work. You know, how can they make a decision this big? They're only a teenager. What if they change their mind? Aren't hormones tolerable for your body? Aren't they going to cause cancer? And what about fertility, right? Every question can be put under one of those. That's the five question umbrella, right? That every question is an iteration yeah. of that, Right. And so it stands to reason then that providers themselves are going to possibly have those questions as well. And that may impact the way they do the work. Absolutely. Right. And, and what I've seen over and over, I've been doing this work 16 years. And what I've seen is over time, as people do the work longer and longer, they have those, the answers to those questions for themselves. They have the answers to those questions for their families, their patients. And so that's really helpful. But but remember also, this loops back beautifully to our conversation about the healthcare system being so terrible. Right? So one of the problems is that in order to really understand where people are in those trajectories and how they might be moving forward, you have to have conversations with people. Right? It's really important in order to do the best by your patients. You have to talk to them. And so what gets in the way of that? Time? Time gets in the way of it. What else gets in the way of it? Well, some people, they're not trained to talk. Like One of the things about adolescent medicine, right, is that we're trained to have really hard conversations with people. And we're trained to listen. And that's another really, really big part of this work is if you don't have time and you're not really comfortable or you haven't really been trained to talk and listen, you rely heavily on a mental health counterpart to do that talking and listening for you. And I get that, right? I mean, that's kind of how the gatekeeper model of care has developed, right? Is that, oh, I don't really, I don't have the time to find out all this information that we call it an assessment, but it's really a gathering of information so that you can help your patient make an informed decision. That's really what it is. I think, unfortunately, what's happened is that because the this conversation or these series of conversations have been labeled as assessments, it's much more like, oh, well, what are you assessing? I mean, I ask people this all the time. Like, well, what are you assessing for, right? Because there's absolutely zero, zero way that you, as a person that hasn't even known that individual for a very long time, can say whether they're really trans. There's this idea of like, are you really trans, right? And so it doesn't stand to reason that someone who hasn't known that person very long would be able to do that. And so what is the assessment piece about? Well, it really is information gathering. What have you learned about your gender? What conversations have you had about yourself with it? What do you know about interventions? You know, and those are all things that um, can be done by a mental health therapist. They can also be done by a person that has the luxury of having the time to do that. And I think that is one of the things about our particular practice that we've held really strong on, right? Is like, we're actually not going to have 15 minute visits because we can't do our work well in that amount of time, 
right? And and as adolescent doctors, we've always said that. We've mm-hmm. always said like, no, I mean, the things that are, look, adolescents aren't coming in for ear infections, right? <laughs> They're coming in with questions about sexuality or gender or drug use or eating disorders or, you know, the myriad of things, right, that, that adolescents might face in that during that time, a really, really important part of their development. So I think that in order to do the work well, you, so one time somebody asked, and I carry a panel of about 700 patients, 600 to 700, which is an enormous wow. panel, right? That's, that's a lot, a lot more than most people carry. And people have said this to me all the time, how do you know all your patients? Like, how do you know them? And they're, and I'm like, well, what do you mean? How do I know? Well, I talk to them, right? Mm -hmm, And it's really mm -hmm. like, I know everybody's story. I know Mm -hmm. what they've struggled with. I remember every single person from that Mm -hmm. first visit when they walked in Mm -hmm. and what there's something about everybody's story that's unique to them, but there's, there's something that has influenced the way that they think about this or the work or coming into the doctor's office and, and, all of that stuff is is really important. And I also like over time have recognized like not everybody has that luxury. And I feel really grateful that I do and that I continue to advocate for that because it's really critical. And I always tell my patients this, like, listen, families will say all the time, like, oh, we're so sorry. We took up so much of your time. It's like, that's all right. Just remember it the next time. If I'm a little <laughs> late to your appointment, it right. was <laughs> taking the time with somebody else who's new or needs a little extra time. Right. And and you'll remember that this this is what I did for you when you were first starting or you had extra questions. You know, the informed consent model is really poorly understood. So it's just like the affirmative model of gender care. It's really poorly understood and talked about. And I think that the the gender affirmative model is is really one that centers the patient. That's the crux of it, right? It's not like, oh, we bring people in and we make them trans. Like that's not, first of all, that's not a thing. But second of all, that's not the crux of it. The crux of it is centering the person that's seeking services. And so just like informed consent is about information, bilateral information. You need information from me. I need information from you to inform my information back to you, right? Like all of these things, this is, Information is the key part. It's really important for parents. It's really important for patients. It's really important for care providers. And so information is really moving back and forth in a lot of different ways. So what happens when you come in to see a, me? I can talk about what happens when you come in to see me or someone in my yes, practice. Please. Yes, please. <laughs> <Okay>. Yes. So <laughs> what happens is we have a conversation. And, and it's really about like, okay, you know, your young person is going to give me information, some of which will come when you're present and some of it will come when you are not present. Um, that's really important. What I've found is that in yes. general, young people do not share the extent of their gender distress with their parents. They yes. are very protective by nature and they've been navigating it for a long time, right? And so... This is just an example, right? You know, I've had a handful of people come in and be talking about, well, how do you manage? This is, I don't mean to make everything about bathrooms. This is a great example of something that you'd be astonished if you found out as a parent, right? How, I say to the kid, how are you managing the bathrooms at school? Oh no, I, I just don't, I don't drink any liquids until 2 p.m. So I can come home and use bathroom, right? Um, I just don't use the bathroom at school parents are like, what are you talking about? You know, and they're not telling their parents that because they know it's going to cause their parents distress and there's not really great answer. Right. And so people are young people are very aware of that. Right. 
and there's so many things like that. There's so mm-hmm. many things, right? Mm-hmm. There's probably way more even than I know about, right? Because I'm not processing, I don't have gender dysphoria noise, right? So I'm not processing that all day, every day. So part of it is understanding the perspective from the caretaker. What do you know about your child? What are your observations about your child? What are your observations about your child since they've talked to you about their gender, before they talk to you about their gender, during the time that they were, you know, what is your family situation like? What do you think, you know, you're going to, you're going to struggle with? What do you think is going to be amazing and celebratory, right? It's really it's important to get all of that information from the caretaker as well as things like medical history and allergies and family medical history. But it's really important to have conversations with caretakers because another one of the developmental trajectories is where that parent is in their process of understanding and being supportive of their kid, right? Because you absolutely have to align when someone's a minor, they need the, they need their caregiver or parental consent to get any medical intervention. And if you are like so far apart, if the young person is far apart from where their parents are, if you as a provider are really far apart from where those parents are, it's going to be largely unsuccessful, yeah. right? So it's, it's really important to do, even though we use an informed consent model, that doesn't mean it's thoughtless. I can't say this over and over and over again, right? Like parents are at all different places. I have some parents that are like, what is happening you know, my kid told me this yesterday. I have no knowledge, no idea of what this is. And then there's some parents that are like, my kid told me three years ago, we know, you know, what we're here for is information about hormones. Tell us about it and let's move forward, right? There's a big, mm-hmm. that's a big, huge difference, right? And so getting that perspective is really important. It is critically important that that young person have time alone with the provider because, mm-hmm. That allows rapport to be established between the young person and the provider, but it also allows the me as a provider to get information from that young person about what their life on the daily is. Mm-hmm. What are you struggling with every minute of every day, right? Because I can help your parents understand that, and, they, and there are probably things that you're not even telling them. Right. And, and in order for parents to understand where their young person needs to be or move to, they need that information. But if the young person isn't providing it, it's really important to provide that information. So conversation, I guess, is the mm-hmm. answer to your question. That's what happens is people are doing gathering information. Information is going both ways. Yeah. Right. And, and every each visit should start with can I please check in with you about your name and what pronouns you're using? Mm-hmm. If when I get that kid alone, you know, are you comfortable with me using this in front of you? If that kid has said, oh, I'm using my birth name and my birth assigned sex gender pronouns. If I get them alone, it's like, can we check in again? You know, mm-hmm. I want to check in, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. you might not be telling me something while your parents there, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's important for me in the space, the safe space, that I use what is authentic for you. Mm-hmm. And then confidentiality is what we extend to all people who are 12 and above, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. just of any age, but specifically for 12 and above in California, confidentiality extends to the conversations that you have, unless you are worried about someone harming themselves or someone mm-hmm. else or mm-hmm. someone's harming them. Right. Mm-hmm. And so talking about that is, is really important. Mm-hmm. sometimes families come in and they've 
there's no bridge, right? The kid has shared everything with the parent. They're comfortable with the parent in the room. It's not a problem, but that's part of the work, right? Is sort of figuring it out. Well, I can certainly see why 15 minutes is nowhere near enough for all of that. It's, it's crazy. And I can't possibly understand how you have 700 patients. And I know some of them and I know that they get that level of care and they love you. And they are so grateful that that's the way you're practicing with so much heart. And now as I'm listening, I'm really hoping that some doctors listen to this podcast episode too, because I think your approach should be the model for anyone providing trans care for young people. So one of the big things I hear is, you know, there's so many questions about hormones. Oh my gosh, if my kid goes on HRT, you know, it's going to be the end of the world. They're not going to be able to have kids and, or, and even puberty blockers, which people totally misunderstand that are completely irreversible, which all of which I've learned from you, like anything I'm out there spouting about anything medical, what are those big questions that people have and how do you answer them? So again, and, and this is part of the work, the, the sort of nuance of having done this work for so long, right, is to really try and get down to what the actual question is, mm-hmm. <laughs> because yes. what's coming out of the mouth is not always the question, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it takes a lot of, of skill to say, I'm wondering if what you're asking me is this. I'm wondering if you're worried that your kid is going to change their mind. And then if they do, what will that look like for their physicality, for their life, right? Because at the end of the day, the two big questions, right, are going to be like, what's it going to be like if my kid stays on hormones? And then what's it going to be like if they stop hormones, right? Those are that's yep. one of the big things. And one of the most important things for people to remember is that taking hormones is not one decision. It's mm-hmm. a decision every time you do it. And so if we take some of the, just like, this isn't one giant switch that you're going to pull down and like, like this giant machine is going to unfold, right? It's like, you're making a decision that this feels like the best thing to do right now. And that we're going to continue. It's not like, here's your hormones. Bye. We're never going to touch base again. That's not the way, if people are practicing like that, that's not a good way to practice. It is an, again, an ongoing conversation. There is... Remember, it's really important for people to remember that you're talking about induction of a second puberty. It is not overnight. Your first puberty wasn't overnight. Your second puberty is not going to be overnight. And in general, it's an excruciating amount of time that people wait for any changes. And so this is really such a critical thing, right, is like helping everyone understand that we have, first of all, all humans that are started puberty, have all the hormones. They all have progesterone, they all have testosterone, and they all have estrogen. They have all of the hormones, right? So part of doing this work is understanding that what we are doing is shifting the ratios, right? So we are recreating a hormone milieu that has different ratios. So we're not giving your kids bleach. We're giving them bioidentical forms of what's already in their body. So when you think about, or you're thinking about the safety, or you're thinking about like, oh, these are chemicals. Well, no, it's not. They are things that your body already is making on its own. We're just changing the ratios. So that's the first piece, right? The second piece is because we have hormone receptors from our brains to our toes, we often spend a lot of time talking about like boobs and beards, 
right? But what we don't talk about is brains. We don't talk about the fact that it is likely that gender identity lives in the brain. It is likely and has been shown in research that there are sexually dimorphic regions of the brain that look different in men and women and in trans folks, they're hybrid. And it is important to understand that your hormone ratios are probably impacting your brain and that your benefit to your brain when you get the right hormone milieu is probably way more beneficial than the benefit to your beard or your boobs, right? So talking about <laughs> what is so important mm-hmm. for people. And so you have this kind of lead up because the way that bodies work, right? The way that when we're talking about these parts of our bodies that have specific receptors, androgen receptors or estrogen receptors, like hormones have to land in those receptors, then a message has to be sent to the center of the cell, and then it has to make different proteins, right? So it's it's not like an overnight process. And so you have a lead up amount of time where literally zero things are going to be happening physiologically that you can see, but they can help you understand in your brain if it's feeling better for you. Right. And that's really important because it gives lead time for you as an individual who's actually the person taking the hormones to actually say, uh, you know, and I've had people do this. Like people have started and said, no, that doesn't feel right. I'm going to stop. Cool. You know what? That's amazing that you have had zero physical changes. There is nothing irreversible about anything that's happened. And you have this opportunity to know if you feel better on this particular hormone milieu. But also stressing that, again, like your young person is going to have to make this decision every time they take a pill or put a patch on or, you know, stick a needle in their body or they're going to make that decision about whether to keep taking hormones. So take a little bit of the weight off of its one decision. That's very helpful. It's also very helpful for people to understand that blockers are reversible. (laughs) it's so it's so important we've been using puberty blockers we call them puberty blockers but i'm going to call them what they actually are which are gnrh analogs these are medications which basically tell the brain to stop signaling the gonad to make sex steroids it's very specific for that it is that is all it is very specific for that we've used this medication in children i mean children not even adolescents five, six, seven-year-olds who go into early puberty. We don't want to be in puberty at that age because it's a problem. So we've used puberty blockers in children for much longer than we use them in kids with young people with gender dysphoria, much longer, years. Sometimes people are on GnRH analogs for seven years. And then at 12, we take them off and they go through puberty. We also use GnRH analogs in adults. We use GnRH analogs for people with endometriosis. We use GnRH analogs for IVF. We use GnRH analogs for prostate cancer, right? There's a lot of uses of this medication. It's been around for more than 40 years. It has an amazing safety profile and low side effect profile. But the level of scrutiny that gets attached to anything we're using for trans care is just astronomically out of control, right? There aren't people picketing hospitals for using GnRH analogs for kids in early puberty. Let them go through puberty at five. Like that's not happening, right? Because why? Science. That's why it's not happening. Science, right? Because we've used these for decades. And so there's also no sort of political capital for precocious puberty, 
right? Or endometriosis or prostate cancer. Like there's no political capital. So it's very important to ask ourselves why we are having a different response to a medication that has a good safety profile and a low side effect profile that we've been using in all age people from as early as four or five years old through 80s. You know, why is it suddenly becoming the focus of people's books, for example, right? Like that doesn't make any sense. So puberty blockers are reversible. They allow people an opportunity to put a pause on their pubertal development And that can be for a variety of reasons. It's not just one reason, right? If somebody's like, you know what? I'm not sure. I don't really know. Like I have this feeling that something's going on with my gender. I don't really know, or I'm non-binary and I don't really know how I want to wear my gender just yet or what's going to feel the best for me. And I don't mean this at all in a flippant way because I know that gets taken out of context. But what I mean is like, if you have a 12-year-old They're very, very early to puberty. They're non-binary. They haven't had a lot of opportunity to have conversations about how they want to wear their gender best. Maybe they just don't know yet, right? And But they know for sure that right now developing breasts feels really bad, right? And if at a later time your young person makes a decision, like a flat chest feels so, like it's alleviating so much distress for me, like, and you save them surgery, like that's a real gift. That's a gift to them. That's really important. That's why blockers are such a sentinel moment in youth care, right? This idea that we can give people time is really a big deal. So that's one thing. Blockers are used for other things as well, but they're also used to do what's called like, it's capping, it's a bridge for the gap of development and chronological development of transmasculine people because there's a differential. So people with ovaries start their puberty on average earlier. So the, the, and the first stage of their puberty is chest development, which is often the worst thing about that puberty, right? So the, the use of blockers is different in transmasculine, transfeminine and non-binary people. Not a surprise because these developmental trajectories are different as well, right? And and all of that is rooted in history. <laughs> it's rooted in our historical incapacity to deal with people that we perceive as male in women's attire. That is 100%. And it's all wrapped up in patriarchy and misogyny and just our, the way that we have decided to function. And so there's bridge time between it doesn't make sense. Like you're not going to put, I mean, for a lot of reasons, you're going to put an eight-year-old on testosterone. That makes zero sense, right? But it bridges, if they start puberty at eight, it bridges that gap between them and their peers around the beginning of puberty. So that there's reasons for it in that way too. It also can be like maybe a family or parents feel really nervous. They don't have enough information or they're just somehow hoping that their kid's not trans. I think a blocker can be a really good stopgap while you help get them that knowledge because Mm -hmm. most people starting younger anyway are going to need a blocker also. So there's a lot of roles for blockers. It's not just one role and it necessitates a conversation, right? This is why it's not, people always call me and they say, what is your protocol? And I say, well, my protocol is have a conversation, (laughs) see what people need and then Mm -hmm. work your butt off to get them what they need and deserve, make Mm -hmm. appropriate referrals, do the things that you need to do to help people be their best them. Yeah, that's the protocol. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then when you're not doing that, this is really important too. And and unfortunately, I I see a lack of this in the work. But 
because there's still a growing body of data about trans youth care specifically, it is imperative that people go to other fields of existing science in order to understand or make improve the care, make the best decisions, right? So in my work, I have, you know, thousands of articles that go back to like, you know, growth and they go back to like pubertal development. And they go even go into the world of like sports enhancement, testosterone use or postmenopausal hormone replacement, all kinds of fields of study that are, you take the things that are meaningful or extrapolatable or give you clues about worry or concern and you apply them to this work. That way you make the best, you know, scientific decisions as you're moving forward. They're not baseless. I'm not like, oh, hey, I give everyone progesterone cause. No, I mean, I've done a lot of work looking at the different things that I'm giving to people and offering to people. It's not just out of a hat, right? It's, it's really important that we pull from what we already know is true and has been proven and used over and over again, right? We don't, we don't want to put our patients in danger, And so that's the protocol. In case anyone's listening that's wondering, that's the protocol. (laughs) Yeah, no, I really, really appreciate that. And I'm going to be sending people to this episode because I hear it a lot that they're they're afraid and everything you just described seems so comforting. Like there's going to be all this information and education and put your mind at ease about all the misconceptions that you've heard out there by all the misinformed people (laughs) are not true. Like talk to an actual doctor and you're going to feel so much better. And so much of what you said, I didn't know. I mean, I, Jackie remembers well me fighting her when she wanted to go on hormones. I didn't know any of what you just said. She was trying to explain it to me, which that should not have been her job in any way, shape or form. I'm sure you'll agree (laughs) as she's trying to figure out, you know, getting the care she needed and and her own transition. So I think everything you just shared is incredibly, incredibly important. And I thank you for taking the time to do that because there's nothing to fear. There's so much more to fear by not getting your kid what they need. Yeah. I think it's an interesting part of the conversation sometimes when families will, parents will say like, well, we're going to make maybe a fear-based decision, but at the expense of our kid. Mm-hmm. Whereas really forward thinking would be, you know, like, okay, let's talk about the possibility that maybe down the line, you do decide that this wasn't, maybe not that it wasn't the best thing for you to do at the time, because sometimes it is what you need to do at the time. And mm-hmm. later on, it's no longer what you need to do. And that's all part of being a human. <laughs> that's yes. part of being a human. You know, that's- I was like, oh, well, you know, we, in some ways we have to think about where we are in that moment. You know, what if you just like totally thought about, in some cases, right, gender affirming care is harm reduction, Mm -hmm. right? Like instead of burdening ourselves with like predicting the future, which none of us can do, Mm -hmm. what if we said like, oh, this is going to, this is going to keep my kid healthy, happy, and maybe alive right now. Mm -hmm. Like, isn't that important? Again, like, I don't mean that in a flippant way. I mean, it in the most serious of ways, right? Mm -hmm. Is like, Mm -hmm. if you have an alternative, that works better and makes people feel better and helps them, then do it. But if you don't, we need to have a conversation, Mm -hmm. right? And we need to talk about how we can meet your kid where they're at right now. Mm -hmm. And then we will keep having this conversation because it could change. It's very rare. I mean, this is the other thing. Like the more we do this work, the more people are going to, I don't want to use the word, 
the more we do this work, the more people are going to say, oh, that wasn't necessarily the right thing for me. Of mm-hmm. course, it's a numbers game. Mm-hmm. It's a numbers game. But that number is still very small. <laughs> if it's like 1% or 1% to yeah. 2% or whatever, yeah. of course it stands to reason that the more people who get care, that not the percentage, but the number, actual mm-hmm. number is going to go up. Mm-hmm. Right. And so mm-hmm. until and, th- and this is another thing that's frustrating, right, that right now we don't have a way to predict who those people are going to be. Mm-hmm. We don't know. And we also don't know every person's reason for that decision. And this is this is so important, too. Right. Like there are people who like they actually their gender dysphoria dissipates and they no longer and they feel comfortable living in their gender that's aligned with their sex assigned at birth. But the majority of people, that is not their situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The situation is, is that their gender dysphoria does not dissipate, but they are making a strategic decision around their life. Like I've had a few yeah. people like this where it's like, oh, it's just, it's just too hard. It's too hard. You know, mm-hmm. I have to every day explain this to people, you mm-hmm. know, or, you know, in my community, this is just really not a thing. And so I have no one. Right. And it's just easier for me. And, and that's that's been the case with the community since the community. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, trans people have been around since people. Right. And so they've, they've been extraordinary at making strategic decisions around how to do their gender mm-hmm. in a way that was tolerable, in a way that was tolerated. I think that that's not new. I think our understanding of it is poor. Because we don't ask the community enough. Right. We keep imposing our own thoughts on them. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I've had people who who are like, you know, it's just unbearable to me. Like I had a patient who was like, it's unbearable to me that I wasn't um, born a woman. It's just unbearable and therefore I can't do it. And so is that really like, is that a person that shouldn't have undergone medical intervention? No, because they wouldn't have known that until they started medical intervention. So... Mm -hmm. Again, like it's about great thoughtfulness. It's not about doing this thoughtlessly. It's about understanding all of those nuances, right? Mm-hmm. And saying like, no, there is no certainty. There's no mm-hmm. way that I can tell you like, yes, this is always going to be the right thing for your kid because I don't mm-hmm. know that and neither does your kid. And you've right. spent so much time charging your kid with certainty that they've had no room for their own uncertainty. Like leave them space, You know, I had a kid who spent a year, a year begging his mom to let him start tea, begging, harassing, (laughs) hounding, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And finally, I think what really was just a great act of capitulation, she said, okay, you know, and he had his first shot at our facility and didn't see him for months, you know, and he he looped back around. I was like, oh, hey, you know, I want to check in with you because I haven't seen you since you had your first shot. And he said, I wasn't ready. And he had spent Mm -hmm. so much time proving to everyone around him that he was trans and that he needed testosterone, that he had no moment, no moment of his own time to say, "Mm, am I sure? Am I certain about this? Like, Mm -hmm. because anything like that, any sort of concern, any sort of like worry, what am I going to look like? What is this? Like anybody who has that immediately, the cisgender people around them are like, are you sure you're trans? Right. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, there's no space to even say like, I feel really sad about fertility loss. Like that makes me really sad. It doesn't mean I'm not trans. It just is sad. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, or things like, 
and this could loop back around. He started on T. He's been on T for years now. But mm. the point was what the learning lesson that I got from that young person, as always, I'm grateful for everything I've learned from my patients. But what I learned was, oh, you've been so busy trying to prove this to everyone else. You haven't had any time to think about yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Like what a shame, you know, but also how lucky you didn't get mm-hmm. one shot of, you know, 20 milligrams of testosterone and you woke up the next morning with a beard, right? Mm-hmm. You, none of right. that happened, right. right? And so you were able to say, oh, oh, this, what I learned here was that I'm not ready and I need to do some of my own work right now. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm ready, I'll loop back around. I love hearing these stories because I learned so much. And to your point earlier, these are the, the I don't know what you call them, the edge cases, the, the outliers. The, I mean, because as a parent, part of multiple parent groups, I can say that for the vast, vast majority of us, when our kids go on hormones, they feel so much better. Like it's not a panacea. It doesn't fix everything. But for the vast majority, they're like, I knew this is what I needed. This is absolutely what I needed. I knew I was good. I've been on all the forums with transgender people who talk about how much better they feel. I mean, certainly for Jackie, you know, that was the case. So know that those kinds of cases, while they're very interesting to hear about, and they can give comfort for like, try it because you never know. I mean, the vast majority of the cases are, it's the right thing. (laughs) And they don't stop. I mean, and and this is, but that, that speaks to this important point, right? It wasn't that that kid didn't know his gender. He knew his gender and he knew his gender was male. He just hadn't thought all the way through what he was going to do about it, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's a critical thing because when people ask the question, how can they make a decision this big? What they're asking is, how can my kid make a decision about their gender? And their mm-hmm. kid's not making a decision about their gender. Their kid is putting together a puzzle that helps them understand their gender because, because when you are in utero and somebody finds out the genitals of your child or the chromosomes of your child and you engage in a process of now creating a totally cis-normative pathway for them, there's actually no pathway if that's not your gender, right? Why do cis people, why do we know our gender at three? Well, because it's all there laid out for you. It's very Mm -hmm. clear. You don't have to swim upstream, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're trans or non-binary, you have to swim upstream. And so it stands to reason that if you're running into rocks and bears and banks and all kinds of things, A, you're working five times harder, but B, there's no pathway cut for you. And Mm -hmm. so some people know it at three and some people at eight and some people at 13 and some people at 20 and some people at 30 and some people at 60. Mm -hmm. And so honoring that and saying, like, we hear this all the time, right? Well, if someone's talking about their gender when they're three, they're too young to know. And if they're talking about it at 15, why weren't you telling me when you were three? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. No right age. Mm-hmm. Eden said this one. No right age to be trans. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think about that a lot, right? It's like, well, there's your gender and then there's your understanding of your gender. And then there's your gender identity, how you label your gender. And then there's what you're going to do about your gender because you want your gender performance or expression to move closer to your gender, right? These are very nuanced concepts and they're hard for people to understand. But if you're Mm -hmm. talking about like, oh, you know that your gender is different than your designated sex at birth. Now, what do you want to do? Let's talk about what you can do. And and when you think about that, like young people, adolescents make those kinds of decisions all the time. Yeah. All the time, Mm -hmm. right? And we're asking them to like predict the future all the time and they can't. You know, and then what happens when you as a parent, right, you're supposed to have charge of this because you've been around longer. 
right? You haven't been around longer as a trans person. Most trans kids aren't raised by trans parents, right? They're raised by cis parents. And so you're supposed to be the guiding light. You don't know what you're doing. Right? So I always say, it's like, so true. Well, what advice are you going to give your trans kid, right? Like you're, you're not from the community and you probably don't know any trans people that you know of are trans, right? You have mm-hmm. no familiarity with this. And so you're really the blind leading the sighted. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I had not thought of it that way. I'm sure it felt that way for Jackie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing and the way you look at it in terms of giving kids that space to make to make those choices and to create a pathway for themselves. Yeah, I just can't get over how important that is. And it, it boggles my mind to try to think back to when I was like 12 or 14 or 15 and what it would have been like to come to terms with everything then. So I, I'm so glad that there are people like you out there doing this work to support those kids. And I, I wish we could talk for like hours and hours, but I do have to run. And I just want to say thank you so much for being here today, for taking the time. I don't know how you sleep ever or do anything with how many patients you have. So that, you know, just makes me exponentially more grateful that you took the time. And, and I really think that this will be a helpful conversation for parents, for trans people, advocates, hopefully anyone who listens. Awesome. If you all want to have like a conversation about hormones specifically, I'm happy to do that. You know, I always say this, like the hormone, the science piece of this is the easiest part. It's everything else that's the hardest. But I do know also people want information about hormones and like what kinds of hormones we use and things like that. So if you want to do a follow up, let me know. We should do that. I think this whole talk, I've been thinking we need a part two and, you know, or maybe two, three, four, you know, depending on how, but yes, absolutely. We will take you up on that and we can just dive into hormones because so many of the folks listening are really, really hungry to learn exactly that, to learn more of the specifics. And it's not out there largely. So thank you for that offer. And <laughs> we're going to, de- we're definitely going to take you up on it. I'll have reporters who are like, Oh, can I have a half hour of your time? And I'm like, well, you can, but <laughs> you're going to want more. Yeah. It's like, once we open the can of worms, you're, you're going to want to dive into things a lot more. So we're, I think we're for sure. I want we're to leave that. people with more questions, right? Yes. I think it's like, being um, and th- thinking through this more and thinking like, okay, well, part of it is exactly what you're saying, Bridget, like taking some of the initial anxiety out of it. Mm-hmm. Like, look, it's it's not as fast as you think. This isn't one decision. This is the second puberty. It's going to be, you know, too fast for you and too slow for your kid. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 100% what I've, what I've witnessed. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Taking some of the anxiety out of it. And then, and then really, like, I think about the amount that I talk about actual hormones is like mm-hmm. so little compared mm-hmm. to really helping people just conceptualize gender in a different way. And, yeah. and, and really hopefully help people loosen up that gender essentialism that is so bad for people. It's so bad for the society, but that gender essentialism of your body equal or your gender equals your genitals is just so harmful. It's harmful for all human beings. Right. But it's really helpful to shake that loose for people and say, is it? Well, where did you learn that? Let's talk right. about that. Right. There, yeah. Let's have a the conversation. As you've so eloquently said so many times, like there's so much conversation that we need to have about all of this. And there are so many beliefs embedded in these brains that just need to be shaken up and replaced with what with the reality. Yeah. It's hard for people. I mean, things when they learn new things, right? Like that gender essentialism is, is only somebody's concept, right? It's not, mm-hmm. it's not a universal truth. 
it shakes up all of their things that they feel are universal truths. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't know why it does, but it does. And it's like, mm -hmm. no, I have to question everything. And it's like, well, you should question everything. So that's right. good. But right. you know, exactly. It's, it's not really shaking every foundational thing in your life. It's just right. one thing. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. I can certainly say that after the three and a half years I've spent in transforming family, four and a half years or so since Jackie came out nothing is what I thought it was before. And the things that I thought were catastrophic and, and so scary, I don't, I don't have any of those feelings about them anymore. It's like, this is, as you keep saying, this is just science. This is just human diversity. This is, you know, yet it's seen in the world as something very different from that. And so, so this is why we're all here. <laughs> and why I'm sure we'll have more conversation. Thank you so much. Really oh. cool. We'll see you for part two. Yes, part two. And yes, thank you so much, Dr. Joe. Take care. Bye, you too. Bye. <laughs> nice to meet you, Jackie. Thank you so much for listening to our Transgender School podcast. We hope you learned something new and that you're inspired to learn more. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And please be sure to check out our website, transgenderschool.org. You'll find many valuable resources there, including news about upcoming courses we'll be teaching. Make sure to join us for future podcast episodes. We'll catch you on the first Tuesday of every month. 